0: One of the things I realized is that my identity was never being a doctor. It's like being a doctor is something I do, it's something I know how to do, it's something I'm very good at, but it's not my identity. My identity is much bigger than that.
1: Okay, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Dr. Jeffrey Gladden. Now, many of you have probably heard me talk about the Gladden Longevity Clinic, which is where I go in Dallas, Texas. Um, Well, this is Dr. Gladden. This is his clinic that he started, and I have been, and many others, have, have really been the beneficiaries of. It's a phenomenal place that's really changed a lot for me physically and mentally. He has a great journey to that work. Uh, Beginning as an interventional cardiologist with a passion for bringing cutting-edge services to the outlying areas, uh, he eventually pivoted into longevity medicine after facing his own mortality at the age of 50. He cracked the code for himself and came to new realizations and questions that drove him to a new consuming passion which is helping others turn back the clock and stay young to lead their best and most impactful lives. Dr. Gladden is, amongst other things, now releasing his first book, Making 100 the New 30. And we really cover a lot in this episode. It was fun for me to have a chance to uh, share his story. And um, I know you'll enjoy it and learn a lot. all right well welcome we are here today with dr. gladden and um, it's really a treat for me to have you on the show like we were just talking before we press record to really hear your full life story i've I've had the pleasure of getting to know you through strategic coach and as a client patient of yours and I've talked about the Gladden Longevity Clinic on the podcast, as I've talked about Mm -hmm. some of my habits and some of the things that I'm doing for my own health. So our audience has probably heard me talk about you and your clinic, but doesn't know you. So it's great to have a chance for them to get to know you and me too. Yeah.
0: Well, those are two different things for sure. So yeah, it's exciting for me to be here and have a chance to share. So
1: yeah, good. Good. Well, let's start at the beginning, and maybe you could just share kind of where you're from and what your early childhood memories are, kind of whatever stands out, jumps out about your family life as a child. Yeah. I was born in
0: Jackson, Michigan, and I was born in 1954, although I wake up 27 every day, as you know. Right. Uh, But I was born in 1954. I was the second child of two children. I had an older sister who was born in 1950 and had an anoxic birth so as she was coming through the birthing canal they stopped my mom's contractions and pushing and things like that and it turned out that she suffered some brain damage in that process while they were waiting for the ov to show up and nobody really knew about it until she started kindergarten and she just wasn't cognitively able to keep up and the reason i mention that is because it had an impact on everyone's life and my parents were told this was around age five for her i would have been about two and a half that you know they should just put her in an institution and forget about her. And my mom at that point was about 25, and my dad was about 29, and and they decided not to do that. They loved Linda, and you know they she'd been their daughter for five years, and they they weren't going to step away from that. So, so they spent you know the rest of their lives, quite honestly, making sure that Linda was cared for. And uh, Linda lived with my mom uh, in the latter part of her life. Uh, they tried her at different school, so to speak, and things like that. But as I grew up, that was one of the overarching themes in my family was uh, Linda's kind of disability, if you will. I had a good childhood. I think in a lot of respects, you know, my dad worked hard. He was in the insurance business, estate planning business. My mom was a homemaker. I was very close with my mom's father. He was actually more like a father figure to me in many respects than my own dad because my own dad was quite busy. So, you know, he's the guy that would throw the baseball and Mm -hmm. tell me jokes and play cards and teach me games and take me out and do stuff and just have me jump in the car and go around town with him as he ran errands and all those kinds of pleasant things you do with grandparents. But I ended up, you know, in a scenario where my dad took a job in Boston. We were living in Philadelphia. We moved from Jackson to Grand Rapids when I was two. And then. Uh, At age seven, we moved down to Philadelphia, and at that point, my dad was in charge of the John Hancock Central City Agency, if you will, and kind of grew that into one of the top agencies in the country, but then he was invited to go to Boston to work in corporate, and so we went up there for a couple of years commuting from Philadelphia, and that was a difficult time for me because my mom started to emotionally kind of rely on me. He wasn't there and they weren't all that close anyway. And then there was my sister, of course, and then there was me. And since I was a little bit more emotionally intuitive and connected, she was kind of leaning on me. And that- um, And how
1: old were you? About 12. I would uh-huh. have 12, yeah. yeah. And so- Do you remember uh, that? I'm just curious, you know, oh, yeah. in hindsight, you know, it's sometimes easier to piece these things together, but you remember the- the feeling that you, your mother was leaning on you at that point? Yeah, definitely. In fact, from that point forward, I was
0: kind of in a role where I could understand my father, right? I could understand his perspective. I could understand my mother's perspective, but they couldn't seem to understand each other's perspective. Mm. And so as I was going through my teenage years, I spent a fair amount of time trying to explain my mom to my dad and my dad to my mom and try Mm -hmm. to help them kind of keep their relationship going. Meanwhile, you know, I was really intrigued by science and sports. I grew up playing baseball every day in the summer and football in the fall and soccer and then played soccer and basketball in high school and things like that. And anyways, I'm going along with all this. I got to the end of high school and it was like, you know, I'm out. I'm out, man. I want to get out of here because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just all Mm -hmm. this sort of emotional pressure on me from my mom and my dad and the whole scenario was a little bit rough at that point. So I went away Mm -hmm. to college. I went to Wheaton college outside of Chicago Mm -hmm. and it was about 900 miles away. And it was like,
1: that's just about far enough. You know, it could be further, Mm -hmm. but it's just about far enough. So let me just hop in there for a second. So backing up a little bit, you, uh, you mentioned, you know, you're into athletics, you're into science, you know, tell me a little bit more about kind of what was it about those, Subjects that started to really be energizing for you, and you know, at what ages? Just tell me a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So actually, there is another element to this, and there's kind of a spiritual side to my life, which has always been there, also. So when I was three years old, uh, again living in Grand Rapids now in the winter, I remember actually this occurred in the summer. I remember walking down the street, and I was debating the existence of God because I was going to Sunday school at that point, and I was. Thinking that someday when I grow up, I want to become wise. And that's been a trajectory of mine ever since is this idea of really growing into wisdom and understanding and greater perspective. So
1: that's a theme that's run the whole way through. And when it's just I'm sorry, I'm just curious Mm -hmm. when you say wise at three years old. And uh, and I'm guessing because you're coming out of Sunday school, you're talking about like understanding God, I'm the talking spirit, about, universe, something right? Not you're not talking about becoming intelligent in a subject matter or knowledgeable, uh, right? Or is no, it It, is it, it you know, wasn't. That's correct. It wasn't yeah. so
0: much about mastering a particular subject, like academic subject. It was more about. Learning to live life in a way where I was making wise decisions, Mm -hmm. treating people wisely, making wise decisions, you know, just navigating life with a sense of wisdom as opposed to, you know, if I were to articulate it now, as opposed to being reactive, to being more going for a depth of understanding, if you will. And I think that kind of played into this whole thing of, you know, me understanding my parents and all this kind of stuff, right, and trying to be wise in the way that I was helping them kind of navigate some of their stuff. So, yeah, and and what one of the things that happened for me that brings these two things together was I went to Christian schools growing up. My parents put me into Christian schools. They weren't like super strict, but they wanted me to go to these Christian schools. So, I went to a Christian school in Pennsylvania and uh in 7th grade I had a teacher who had a PhD in geology basically from Swarthmore College, which is a high-level school. Mm -hmm. And he was the science teacher. We had small classes. I only had like 30 kids in my class, right? But he selected three or four people from my class and three or four people from the eighth grade class. His name was Dr. Roberts. And he started, he invited us to come to this every month. We would get together on a Monday after school and have a pizza And we would discuss books, and it might have been every three weeks, but he would have us be reading about Copernicus and Galileo and, you know, the history of how the church and science interface with each other and how much uh, issue was generated from that. And he was a person that really opened my, my eyes to kind of both academic thought and then the idea of questioning how people were thinking and how... Religions were organized, and what's you know, where is truth, and how do we actually get to that? So it was really a pivotal moment in my life to be a part of that. I was part of that for a couple of years, and the other students that were in there were also thoughtful people, right? So we had really interesting conversations. Mm. Even though, I, you know, sorry, how
1: old were you when this was happening?
0: Seventh grade, eighth grade, uh-huh. okay. yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, which is a little unusual, but it, you know, we were all primed for it. So to speak. sure, sure, and it was really. uh it was really special, so that also set me on a trajectory of really academic pursuit and and deeper understanding, if you will.
1: So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interesting, yeah. So, I will we'll probably come back to that because you know this idea and why I was so curious about the word wise. I, I know you're on a journey. We all are. I mean, this is part of the reason for the podcast is to share these journeys you know, some have more spiritual awakening or engagement than others, you know, and I know yours does have quite a through line of of spirituality. And Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to, to kind of go back and reflect on those things that happen in your life that really do connect dots, not just in like, you know, what got you interested in this or that, but in that spiritual way. You know, you can really see the people showing up in your life that start to nudge you in a direction that is ultimately not just leading us to where we are, but, you know, kind of maybe leading us back to where we come from.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Leading us back to where we come from. As you as we uh, continue this conversation, you'll see it hasn't been a straight line.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, not it, it isn't usually. But okay, so I was I was just kind of curious to hear a little bit more about that. And you know, you mentioned going off to college and the kind of excitement about getting away. You know, I, I'm just imagining, you know, before we talk about that, this burden really, or a heaviness, or mm. a responsibility that was put on you at a very young age. And, you know, I had that to some degree in my life, too. You know, my parents Mm -hmm. were divorced. My mother was often alone and raising uh, my sister and I before she um, divorced my father and remarried. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had two younger brothers. I kind of felt some, I guess, urgency to mature or be responsible or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, supportive uh, maybe at a young age, maybe earlier yeah. than you're supposed to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I actually look back on it and today I can look back on it quite favorably. It was kind of mm-hmm. cool that I got to, you know, uh, mature a little fast, <laughs> yeah. not, again, not a straight line. It was hard at the time, but you know, in yeah. hindsight, I'm like, Oh, you know, that served me pretty well, but it's heavy. It's a lot for a kid to take on.
0: Yeah, it is. And and you know what's interesting as
1: a kid, sometimes you don't
0: fully comprehend the heaviness of it until you're out from under it, right? Because Mm -hmm. we tend to normalize our situations on some level. Sure. And you end up kind of living in reaction to it, but you're not always aware of it in the same way that you are later when you get a chance to reflect on it, right? So Mm -hmm. so it was an interesting time. But you know, there were a lot of good times too. We Mm have we had a lot of good times. So my parents were Very encouraging of me academically. They were also taught me a really good work ethic. You know, Mm -hmm. like I remember, I remember my mom having me clean the garage, maybe even when I was in seventh grade or something like eighth grade, go out and clean the garage. And she'd, I'd go out and take everything out and clean the garage and hose it down. And she'd come out and inspect it, say, no, no, Mm -hmm. this isn't good enough. You got this and this and this and do it again. Mm -hmm. I do it again. She'd come out. Nope still not good enough look at this look at this do it again and so you'd be so pissed off but you started to learn you know that you really need to perform at a level and I remember one I was cutting the grass for the family but we had two acres and I would cut the front acre where we lived and um one night my dad came home at like 8 30 at night after work and he asked me did you finish cutting the yard and I said well no you know my friend Joe and I got together and we decided to do this and he said no you're going to cut the grass. And I'm out there with a flashlight at nine o'clock at night cutting mm-hmm. the grass, right? Mm-hmm. So you get those kinds of lessons that it's like, you know, when you say you're going to do something, you do it and you, you know, a sense of responsibility, you're going to do it well if you're going to do it at all, right? And so all those kinds of things came
1: through too, which have served me well. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're really
0: good, really good values too, right? Mm-hmm. That I've picked up. So
1: yeah, I can imagine how that's all served you well and knowing, you know, what you've done with your. Career and your business. I mean, no question, a lot of hard work uh has to uh, go into that. Tell me a little bit about what happens when you get to college and you know, kind of how life starts to unfold for you now that you're away. Yeah.
0: Yeah, good question. So in my junior year, I met a girl actually in a Sunday school class. And we this is the first love of my life, right? So this was this was the high school sweetheart. This was the whole nine yards. Anyway, I went off to college <clears throat> and within about I don't know, six weeks, I was so enamored with all of the academic opportunity that I really forgot about, you know, the relationship. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I just kind of let it dwindle, right? Not, not in this, I'm still in contact with her today, quite honestly, we still text every now and then. And so she's, you know, still has, we still have sort of a special place in each other's hearts. But, but at that moment, I was so enamored with all the opportunity to learn. I'm such an avid learner that everything else fell away. And my college career was really, it wasn't about partying. I did play soccer my freshman year on the freshman team and things like that. I went to soccer camp and met my college roommate who then became my roommate for four years. And we became best friends. And um, so that was a little bit of my social life. But other than that, man, I was was studying, I was reading, I was taking interesting classes. I was just like, I was like a kid in a candy store. And one of the things that I did was I ended up majoring in chemistry, um, knowing that I wanted to go pre-med because <clears throat> I was told in high school we're not sure that you're that you have enough academic chops to make medical school, mm-hmm. and so I thought, well, you know, I was a good student, I was number three in my class, but that's what I heard, and so I thought, well, I'll major in chemistry because if I'm going to get weeded out, let me get weeded out early. So. I took chemistry and I stayed in chemistry. I was kind of relentless about that, but it was hard for me. The Calculus was hard. I did well in physics, did well in organic chemistry, biochemistry, all that stuff made perfect sense to me. But some of the physical chemistry, some of the advanced calculus stuff, that just beat me up. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up with a lower GPA than I would have liked, like a 3.3 which for medical school, isn't that great of a GPA. So anyway, that was a lot of my college was academic pursuits
1: and and a little bit of sports. Mm -hmm. And and so you obviously do go on to medical school. So tell me, you know, uh, that, that becomes something that you weren't discouraged by enough to not continue to pursue this path. Well,
0: here's, yeah. So this is where the story gets interesting too, because I applied to about 26 schools and I was interviewed by one and they didn't accept me. Uh, mm. and so here I am, uh, I finished college, I'm pre-med and what I did was my college roommate was a philosophy major and his dad was a provost at a seminary. So I went off to Fuller Theological Seminary and did two quarters of work out there mm. just to see if maybe that was the direction that I was supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And that, it was that
1: very- um, that three-year-old who wanted to be wise, uh, thought right. maybe this was a chance to do that, huh? That's right. That's Yeah. Exactly. And so I went out there for two quarters and it was great because
0: I lived with his family and the coursework for me was super easy. Philosophy, theology, all that stuff just came super easy for me. So I took all these senior level courses and got straight A's in all of them. And I worked as a janitor in a school and I'd wake up and grab the newspaper and look at the wave report that the surf was up. I'd go body surfing and down at the wedge. And if it wasn't, I'd go to school. And, you know, it was just like, this luxury period in my life. But what I discovered about that was that, you know, I could study theology, philosophy, I could do spiritual things anytime, but I can't just be a doctor anytime. If I'm going to be a doctor, I want to, I want to go study that. Plus I wanted to do something with my hands. I like doing something with Mm. my hands and to just be cerebral all the time. Wasn't really that appealing to me. So I went back and reapplied and they brought me in, and I t- ended up talking to the dean of Temple uh, Medical School in Philadelphia. And he said, "You know, we really like you a lot. We know your GPA is a bit low, but and your MCATs were a little bit off. And I'm the first person in my family to ever go to four years of college, right? So mm-hmm. there's no there's no real tutelage on any of this coming out of my family, right? I'm mm-hmm. just feeling my way. And um, I didn't study for the MCATs. I just walked in and took them, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So so anyway, he said, you know, we really liked you a lot. M. Prince Brigham was his name. And he said, but tell me about this seminary thing. What's that all about? And I said, well, you know, I I wondered if this was a, a path for me. But when I went out and did it, I realized it really wasn't. And I really do want to pursue medicine. And I think this is one thing that's really important for people to understand is that, Whenever you're making a decision, I think it's really important to know not only what you're choosing, but what you're not choosing. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we make best decisions is when you actually understand what it is you're not choosing, not just that you're attracted to something, so you choose it, but you kind of look at it in a broader spectrum.
1: So, and In this case, you are not choosing continuing down the seminary right. path yeah that's right
0: yeah. yeah okay i decided not to
1: do that and yeah. which
0: made the decision to do medicine that much more solid because i yeah. already tested that out right yeah i guess was, right it wasn't a lingering question and so with that he said okay well why don't you why don't you take some more undergrad classes here at temple uh some biology courses or something why don't you do a year research i've got a guy that has a lab that you know Could use your help and then apply early admission? And if everything looks good,
1: then we'll accept you.
0: And that's what happened.
1: Wow. Great. Interesting. Very interesting. And I'm sure there's more there to come back to as we go forward. There is is because of this. So I
0: get into medical school and I'm looking around and I'm like, you know, all these people are here. I don't know if I really deserve to be here. Mm hmm. Right, so you carry that with you. Mm-hmm. It's this question of: Am I really? Am I an imposter here? Right, mm-hmm. that imposter syndrome. Am I really good enough to be here? And based mm-hmm. on what I heard in high school, the, the course that I just gone through, mm-hmm. and then you know, my first semester, you know, I'm number three in the class for anatomy. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I graduate AOA and I graduate with honors, and I do incredibly well. Mm-hmm. It was at some point in the coursework that I realized, you know, I'm not the smartest person on the planet but I'm actually smart enough to do anything I want to do. Mm. And that was a t- turning point for me because all of a sudden I stopped beating myself up about, well, you should be smarter here, or you should be smarter there, or, you know, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just made peace with the fact that I have the gifts that I need to really do whatever I'm interested in doing, right? Yeah. Astrophysicist, that's
1: not my aspiration. So, so that was-, well, I was the, the, Yeah, videos. I was kind of curious because I was wondering, you know, as you described that, how much of the success you were having in school was driven by uh, a need or a desire to kind of prove that you were enough you belonged or how much of it was driven by now this this new piece that you described that was really just passionate about the the work It was passionate about the work ninety yeah. percent and there was yeah. that
0: lingering thing of am I good enough but it was yeah. really I was so enthralled
1: with the what yeah. You were doing
0: yeah just awesome. I it. It couldn't get yeah.
1: what what a great feeling now cuz you've like you said you've said no to something and mm-hmm. now you've said yes to something and it's everything you thought it would be and so now you're all in that's right so so tell me you know you obviously you you know you go through medical school and start to go down the path of traditional medicine right yeah yeah exactly and in my
0: senior year Uh, you know, when you're going to decide where you're going to go to match for your internship and residency, I decided to go into internal medicine initially. I hit another kind of milestone, which is that I'd always been very independent, right? I mean, I, you know, lived in California, went off to school, do anything by myself. And all of a sudden, I became very intimidated by the fact that I'm going to go off to some hospital in some city, some place, and I'm going to be working 100 hours a week. And I'm not going to know anybody and it's going to be like the loneliest thing on planet Earth, right? How am I ever going to meet? I mean, even if I meet somebody, how am I going to have any time to even have coffee with somebody, right? And so I was over at a, at a classmate of mine's home who was the cousin of another classmate, a girl in the class. And we were playing guitars Could we'd, we'd get together on a Friday night, you know, I'm going to say six times out of the year and have a beer and play, play some guitar. And it was super fun. You know, it's just always fun. And his cousin came over and we started chatting and I'd never really liked her from freshman year, but we started chatting. Next thing you know, we strike up this dating relationship. The next thing you know, it's like, well, if we're going to be together, then we need to get married. Otherwise, the the match won't just because we're a boyfriend, girlfriend, they won't consider that. So we ended up making plans to get married. We get married three months later. And it's kind of like making a life decision based on really poor input. So it was the opposite of wisdom, right? Yeah. This, how old were you at that time? Twenty. Let's see, twenty six. I was twenty six. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: it's funny just to kind of pause and reflect on because uh, I what's the saying that you know we make like the most important decisions in our life when you know we. We are least prepared to do so. I mean, right? I mean, here you are. You know, you're now about to start going out into the world and and becoming a a practicing doctor. And so you're perfectly smart enough and capable of making some pretty serious decisions, but this one, right, right, gets made in in a pretty uh, uninformed way.
0: Yeah, well, they're emotional decisions. You know, yeah, we make yeah, we make a great. lot of decisions for for emotional reasons, right? And yeah. we got married and went off to Cleveland, did our uh, our residencies at Case Western. She did uh, uh, pediatrics, I did internal medicine, and my son was born there. And you know, that was fantastic. That was a that was another milestone because, and maybe this is true for you too, but. I realized that when Chris was born and I held him there that first night, Cindy went through 24 hours of labor, kind of a first child stalled labor kind of scenario. She was exhausted. Chris was born probably at <clears throat> two in the morning. And so she's conked out, rightly so, of course. And I'm laying there on this cot next in the room with Chris holding him. And oof, I never mm-hmm. felt love like that. I mean, it was mm-hmm. unconditional love. Like, mm-hmm. oof, I had mm-hmm. never felt that before.
1: You know, I hold
0: him up to the window, you know, here's your first sunrise,
1: right? Mm. Welcome to
0: planet Earth, right? I mean, just like, wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, very, very cool stuff. So anyway, that was a, that was life-changing for me to feel
1: that kind of love. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was very intense, yeah. Yeah, that uh, is hard to ignore. I mean, I suppose, you know, people miss it, but those are pretty big moments and they're Mm -hmm. pretty powerful. They definitely change how you think about a lot of things, you know, bringing kids into the world is it's, it's a game changer. Yep. So um, yeah. So you're studying internal medicine. You're in Cleveland. Yep. You know, tell me about kind of where things go from here.
0: So I basically decided in medical school, I did a, I, you know, Temple didn't have every rotation. I needed to do. So I'd done family practice in San Diego at the University of California, San Diego. I did a neurology rotation in Boston at Tufts. And I did a an intensive care unit, uh, CCU, cardiology care at the Mass General. I went up there and did a rotation for a month. So you go up to this place for a month, you rent an apartment and you go to you basically function as a student there at Harvard or Tufts or wherever you are and i met a guy there and he was a he was the attending physician uh, dr johnson and he uh, he just really took a liking to me for some reason we started talking about art and philosophy and all this kind of stuff and at the end of the rotation he invited me a medical student over to his house for dinner to meet his family and he'd built this whole this whole room just to house one painting right mm. in his home. and he wanted to show it to me and so he was a very very cool guy so when I when I went to Case Western and I had the chance to do an elective uh, my third year, he had moved to Walla Walla, Washington to do cardiology. So I went out to Walla Walla, Washington and took Cindy and my young son. She was on a six-week or two-month sabbatical because of the birth of the child. I went out there and hung out with him for a month and did cardiology with him. And that was kind of my first introduction to seeing cardiology kind of in real life, if you will. Um mm-hmm. uh, And so I found that very intriguing. And Mm -hmm. I also realized that I found relating to physicians that were more than just about being a doctor.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like Mm. a lot of doctors, their identity becomes I'm a doctor. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I realized is that my identity was never being a doctor. It's like being a doctor is something I do. It's something I know how to do. It's something I'm very good at, but it's not my identity. My identity is much bigger than that. Right. Mm It's much more of a spiritual identity, an interpersonal identity, a relational identity, right? An athletic identity, and medicine is just a piece of it. Mm -hmm. And I saw that in him. He was modeling that for me too. He's he was an artist. He wrote poetry. He collected art. He did other things. He liked fly fishing and you know Mm -hmm. stuff like this. And so it was. He was a good role model for me in that sense. So that Mm -hmm. was to kind of get that sense of perspective between you know, medicine in real life, if you will.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that was hugely impactful for you because I would imagine a lot of doctors come from a very kind of high achieving, high drive, right? Like this is a tough path. And in order to end up a doctor, you've got to be pretty damn focused, hardworking, competitive, doing everything it takes for a long time. That's and right. when you get there, you know, I can see how it'd be easy to just identify as I'm a doctor, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and you know, I know a lot of great doctors. My brother-in-law happens to be one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I have friends that, you know, are heads of hospital systems. And, and most of the doctors that I know are really compassionate, mm-hmm. really uh, mm-hmm. empathetic, kind, caring people that have you know, either arrived at the work, fall in love with the work because they care about uh, humans. Now, I mean, like in all things, there's some that are just identifying as doctors Mm -hmm. and want to make sure that, you know, that's the identity. Um, So, you know, it's nice to hear that you had somebody that influenced you into something that was a little bit more full than Mm -hmm. just this identity that, you know, came out of medical school.
0: Yeah, I think to your point. Yeah, I think the people you're talking about they have more of a humanitarian view of life, right? It's more compassion driven and and there are a lot of wonderful people that go into medicine because they are very compassionate about their fellow man, right? Mm-hmm. And they love the academics. And I I felt the same way. <clears throat> it was nice to see that modeled because you see people uh that are very hard-edged also in medicine, right? right. Just like other professions, right? And uh, their status, their you know everything about it kind of gets tied up in that, so yeah
1: uh, well, and, and knowing uh, and I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but knowing the work that you do today and and I do want to get into that, but there's no doubt you chose to go down a path that was more full than the traditional medicine path and mm-hmm. And maybe you could just you know elaborate on you know what you ended up doing and why you am not not what you're doing today, but what you ended up doing next, and why you chose uh not to do that in the long run, yeah, so good question. So <clears throat>
0: I did my internal medicine at at uh, case in uh, Case Western in Cleveland, and then from there, uh, I went to the University of Colorado and did my cardiology, and that was interesting too, because. I, the reason I chose internal medicine, I think this is interesting for the listeners also to understand. When I chose internal medicine, the reason I chose it was because it kept many options open on the back end. And one of the things that I've done as I've gone through life is try to make decisions that create more opportunities on the back end. I don't want to get closed into a cul-de-sac. And so internal medicine was that, many things you can do out of internal medicine. When I got to the end of internal medicine, I realized I didn't want to be an internist. I realized I didn't want to be a GI doctor. I didn't want to be a pulmonologist. I didn't want to be a nephrologist. I didn't want to be a neurologist, right? I didn't want to be a rheumatologist. There were so many things I didn't want to do. And when I got to cardiology, it was like, yeah, well, I could do cardiology, but it was kind of by exclusion. I I didn't choose it because I was like at that moment, because I was so passionate about it. It was like, it was like almost the least evil, if you will. So I'll go do cardiology. And the interesting thing is that when I got to cardiology I fell in love with it. I really fell in love with it. I'd always had a thing for motorsports. We didn't talk about this but you know fast cars, I knew every car on the road at age 4, you know, uh, fast bicycles, dirt bikes, motorcycles. I mean, I've done so much stuff that I mean all over the world, blah blah blah. But the point is that when I got to cardiology, okay, this is an engine. This is a pump. This is valves. Mm-hmm. This is circulation. This is pipes. This is, you know,
1: and so there was a sense of kind of inherent resonance with this. Right. And so, yeah, there was a familiarity. Uh, you, you saw that connection. Like uh, I, I got that. That's an yeah. interesting way to be uh, approaching it.
0: Yeah. And yeah. you know, from firsthand experience that a lot of my passion is about optimizing. How do we optimize yeah a person, right? How do you optimize an F1 car? How do you optimize anything? Right. And so sure. a lot of my life, I'll optimize a dirt bike. I'll optimize a mountain bike. I'll optimize my snowboard, you know, just for performance, right? Uh-huh. It's part of my DNA.
1: Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. So you go into the world of cardiology mm-hmm. uh, and I know that becomes your career for yeah. many years. Yep. And I guess what I want to maybe jump ahead to and feel free to, you know, fill in anything that's important. But you determine that the way that we are treating people, the way that that cardiovascular medicine is being done, uh, at least in the United States, was not what you felt was optimal. Correct? No, that's
0: yeah. exactly right.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So, I went to Colorado, and I'm in Denver, uh,
0: and I'll scoop up what you just asked me in the context of this response. But I ended up going through a divorce. Right. I made a made a decision to get married for, you know, not the clearest and best of reasons. I ended up going through a divorce, which nearly, nearly killed me, quite honestly. I became so depressed because I was so in love with my son. And now it's like I'm going to become a visitor in my son's life. I mean, it was it was like I I literally was suicidal. And so actually I was able to work all that out to where I ended up with joint custody and ended up with a lovely relationship with him through the years. But at the time, oh my gosh, talk about a crisis! I mean, it was it was a true crisis, and so that got solved. And so when I when I uh, finished cardiology, I or the training, I decided to move to Dallas because it was a direct flight for my son to be able to come down and visit me every third weekend, which Mm. we did for years. And went to Dallas also because it was a land of opportunity for an interventional cardiologist, somebody that goes in and does heart casts and puts in balloons. And at that time, we didn't even have stents, but Evolved into all that. And so, you know, Texas has a lot of chicken fried steak eating, uh, tobacco chewing people, right? So I'm like, okay, this will be a good target rich environment for me. So I moved down there. And the first night I got there, I was in tears. It's like, what have I done? You know, Chris is back there. I'm here. I don't know a soul. You know, you go through these existential moments. And I I take this first job and six months into the job, I'm fired. Mm. I'm fired from this job. And the reason is that I was doing so well. I was so well liked by the hospital staff and I was doing so well with the referring doctors and everything that the older partner's brother-in-law who would started a year before me became so jealous of me Mm. that he basically had me fired. So Mm. other people were actually recruiting me. So I just said, okay, I guess I'm available and I joined another group. And so that worked out, but it was still another existential moment. So my point to the audience is that I worked a decade, a decade of work to get to my first job. And six mm-hmm. months in, I'm fired from it. Right. Mm, unbelievable. Enough, yeah. Right? Another yeah. moment. Right. And these yeah. are these are the kinds of things that either you get stronger from or, or they break you. And so, you know, to be able to pick yourself up. I started to learn that really courage is probably one of the most important qualities in life, Mm. the ability to be courageous. and so true.
1: Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I went to work for these guys and worked with them for seven years and, you know, learned a lot about private practice. And again, I'm coming out of zero medical background, right? And so all of this is like, oh, my gosh. What's interesting is that after seven years, they were kind of screwing around with some of the money and some stuff like that. And I thought, you know... I can probably do this better on my own. And so I went off and started my own cardiology group. And it was... How old were you at the time? Close to 40. Mm -hmm. Close to 40. Mm -hmm. And so I leave this group. I leave my salary. I don't get paid for six months because I'm starting my own group, starting my own thing. You know, insurance payments don't come in for a while. So I'm living on money that I have. I have a young family. I'm married again. You know, no income. And... I've always had this thing. I didn't tell you this, but I was looking at having the Navy pay for my medical school. I put myself through medical school. My parents never helped me with medical school. They never helped me with college either. I paid for a third of my college and my grandparents paid for two thirds. They were so focused on Linda that none of that was happening. Mm-hmm. Oh, and By the way, as I was in medical school, I get a call from my dad uh, when I'm probably about 27 or 28 saying, hey, Jeff, you know, you're doing really well. We're so proud of you. You're doing great. I just want to let you know, I had a life insurance policy uh, that you're the beneficiary of, but I just canceled it. And, you know, your mom and I, we just redid the wills and we're going to leave everything to your sister. And so it was a little bit like, oh, my gosh, I am completely on my own. Right. Uh Nobody nobody has my back. Right. Yeah. Completely on my own. I've gone through a divorce. Now I'm leaving the group I'm in, right? Talk about, you know, the courage it takes to actually follow your heart and do what you want to do. I mean,
1: these have been defining moments in my life. And each one of those things by themselves takes a lot of courage. But then, yeah, to start your own business, to leave a a good gig when all of that has transpired takes tremendous courage. Yeah, exactly. So I so I did, and
0: I built that up to ten offices, twelve doctors. We flew around in a little A thirty six Bonanza to get to outline clinics. Uh, I started cath labs. I, we owned cath labs. I got involved with uh, medical device companies and startup companies, and that's when I realized I was an entrepreneur. And that's when I discovered uh, Strategic Coach. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know I was an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. but I had. I had paid for medical school by painting houses in the summer, which I started in college to pay for college. And I was working for some high school teachers at that time. And I realized, you know what, they're screwing us around. I'm going to go start my own company. Mm-hmm. So I started my own company and took two guys with me. And And then I would go out and get the leads and, you know, do the bids and get the business. And we'd yeah. paint. And move on. Right. And that's,
1: and you're an like, entrepreneur. And you know, the funny right. thing is, and and I actually just had this experience real recently. Um, I was visiting my parents in Florida and one of their friends came over to the table and asked, you know, what do you do? And I just kind of knee jerk said, I'm a real estate developer. Cause I felt like it was like the easiest thing for me to just answer the question. And right. I was driving down the street Later that day with my mom, and I said, "You know, I've got to start saying I'm I'm an entrepreneur mm-hmm. when people ask me that question because, right. like you, I mean, I have always been doing entrepreneurial stuff since I was a teenager. Right? But I never identified with that mostly because I didn't even know what it was. Right? You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, that's you get into these silos where you're like, I'm a doctor, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. really, you're way more than that. You're an entrepreneur." Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so I
0: didn't even realize I was an entrepreneur. I just thought I was doing what I needed to do. And, you know, doctors are not particularly entrepreneurial. There are some very entrepreneurial physicians, but the vast majority of them are not, right? So mm-hmm. so it was interesting to, to kind of go out and figure that out. Okay, I guess I am entrepreneurial. That's when I joined Strategic Coach. And so that was a, you know, that was kind of a game changer also. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I built up this cardiology group. Now I'm in my 50s. And I played soccer in college, I mentioned that, and I could run all day, right? So in my 40s, I realized I was starting to put on a little bit of weight, and I was, you know, not feeling that great. And so I thought, well, I'll start to get in shape again. So I went out for a run, and I ran two blocks, and I had to stop. Mm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the wheels have come off, right? And I think this is another True thing, which is that we basically, all of us, leverage our health for the sake of our education, building our family, building our business, you know, whatever it is. We go through that point when when we're youthful and we feel good and we just leverage our health to make this stuff happen. And then we try to scoop it up on the back end. We try to get it back. And so I started working out. I started riding my bike to work. I started, you know, riding my bike on the weekends, lifting some weights, trying to eat better. And sure enough, I got back in pretty good shape three or four months later, I could go run three miles and I felt, you know, a lot better. But that only lasted for a decade. Uh, In my 50s, the wheels started to come off again. Now I'm putting on weight again. I'm getting tired every morning. It's hard to get out of bed. You know, if I come under stress, I'm becoming anxious and depressed. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's just like this whole new raft of challenges that are happening physically for me that I've never had to deal with. So That's when I went and got tested. And you know this part of the story. That's when I went and got tested by my colleagues. And I was simply told, hey, you know, everything checks out for your age. You're just getting older. Why don't you take an antidepressant? And that was another light bulb moment for me. Talk about existential moments. It's like, are you kidding me? My whole life is going to be in decline from here. I've reached my peak. It's all going to go downhill. And my dad ended up dying with dementia. It's like, is this my fate? And I'm like, no, I refuse to accept that. So I went out and studied integrative medicine, functional medicine, age management medicine. And two and a half years later, I'd cracked the code for myself as to what was going on. And I solved the problems. Uh, You know, I was hormonally depleted. I had subclinical hypothyroidism. The genetics of how I make neurotransmitters didn't work properly. And I had to have certain supplements to make them work properly. And once I got all that figured out, I felt great. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've been practicing sick care, not health care we don't have a healthcare system, we have a sick care system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's when I thought, that's when I asked the question that you're familiar with too, how, I wonder how good I can be. Mm -hmm. If I can feel this good, how good can I be? And how good can other people be? There have to be a lot of other people experiencing this. I want to help them. And so after building the heart group into 12 doctors, 10 offices, and all this stuff, I stepped away from the cardiology group. I stepped away from another courageous decision because I knew how to make a living you know, as a cardiologist, you know, insurance reimbursements, blah, blah, blah. And now I basically base jump off of a cliff, right? And it's like, I have no idea how to make a living without an insurance payment. And I went for four and a half years without a paycheck to figure out how to actually make a practice like this work, mm-hmm. right? And so, but at the same time, I was so committed to it because I know this is the future, you know, being able to crack the code on aging, this is the future to be able to give people back their health, so they don't have to deal with decline and all the things that that everybody has to deal with, mm-hmm. and so you know that's become kind of a massive passion of mine,
1: oh yeah, I mean this is like this is it I mean this is what you uh have dedicated your life to doing, that's right, and yeah, the courage once again, I'm just kind of struck by that courage, you know it's uh pretty, it says something about you and also your passion for really trying to do things in this wise way right i mean right. I, th- there's the wisdom coming back in mm-hmm. saying you know i i can't do this you know treat sick people this is not how it's supposed to be there's something that just feels like you know there's some some wisdom in that that That's has right. you uh, following the calling to go yep. do something else. There's a, uh, a saying in um, the the U two, uh, the band U two has a documentary, it's old documentary where they talk about sometimes you just have to throw out the entire self. Right. You got to start all over. You got to throw it all that's away, right. and you yep. got to start all over to get yep. to the next thing. And you know, but that that's really hard for people to do, especially as they get to places in life where they're pretty comfortable, you know, pretty comfortable. They've got responsibility. There's a paycheck coming in. They've got a family,
0: they've got all this stuff. And so I'm doing this while I'm going through a second divorce, Hmm. stepping away from my income, watching half my assets go away. Now I'm responsible for putting kids through, you know, private high schools and then private colleges. Meanwhile, no paycheck. And I'm, you know, I have other sources of revenue Because one of the things I'd done was to co-found a heart hospital uh, with another cardiologist, actually a former partner of mine, uh, which has grown into really a massive thing. And I'll talk about that, too. But it takes a lot of courage to be true to yourself. And one of the things that I think the audience should understand is that if you're going to live a really rich life, a really rich life, and I don't just mean get by and be comfortable and, you know, that kind of thing, but a really rich life where you're able to bring all your gifts forward in an unencumbered way. They talk about dying a thousand deaths, right? And so you basically die to kind of where you are now and so that you can be rebirthed into a new field of possibilities. And being able to step away from what's familiar, having the courage to do that, understanding that, It's part of your path to step into this new sense of possibilities. And I know you've done this in your life. This is so, so critical, I think, to us really actualizing who we are and living our best lives.
1: Yeah. No question. I've talked about this on prior episodes, but Eric Schmidt has a saying um, that you have to run to the next chapter. It's a se- life is a series of chapters. You That's have right. to run to the next chapter when you know That's you right. get to one, not to do the next thing, but because it's about self-actualization. This is That's how right. we actualize as human beings, and it's been spoken in you know all the biblical. Uh, you know, contexts and and various religions and philosophers. Everybody yeah. basically says the same thing that, you know, that's you can't right. be complacent. You have to continue to mm-hmm. put yourself in those positions to evolve. No, that's it. Every wisdom tradition, to your point, has talked about this in
0: some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah. And some of it's in spiritual terms, and some of it's actually in these
1: practical terms. Fair. And the they're, two they're intertwine. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So let's, let's, I want to talk a little bit about how they intertwine for you, because I know a lot has gone on in your life since I've known you, as far as, you know, your evolution as a human being and where you are spiritually and, and how that informs your work. But before we do that, let's talk about Apex Gladden Longevity Clinic. Let's talk about then what do you land in? What did you go create? Uh, Mm -hmm. for the audience. So they, I mean, I know what it is, but you you describe where you ended up with with that next move. Right. Well, the tension has always been the same,
0: which is to answer questions like, how good can we be, right? I wanted to step out of sick care, which is reactive to a problem. There's really three layers of medicine. Okay, the first layer is what we're all familiar with. We'll call it traditional medicine, and it's symptom-driven. And the reason it's symptom-driven would be, Brett, if I ask you, did you see your doctor today? You'd say, well, no, I feel fine. So it's all really symptom-driven, right? And below that is functional medicine, which is root cause medicine. Let's get to the root cause of why you have the eczema or why your stomach's upset or why you're bloating, right? And that's great. But below that is longevity medicine. And longevity medicine is focused on the things that are actually driving aging, because the thing that most people don't realize is that aging is an exponential process. It's not a linear process, but we perceive it as being linear. We think, okay, every year, another birthday, a little older, a little older, it's linear. I don't feel that much difference. It's a linear process. But in actual fact, we when we observe it, we see that it's exponential. We know people age so much more between 70 and 80 and 80 and 90 than they do between 30 and 40 and 40 and 50, right? We see the exponential slope, but we have such a hard time projecting ourselves into that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: if I ask you, what are you going to be like ten years from now? If you're listening to this and you just ask yourself, what are you going to be like ten years from now? It's like, well, I don't know. I'll probably be like I am. Right? It's very
1: hard to imagine decline or exponential decline. Very, very right. hard. Well, so, or if you've been in in your uh, program long enough, you know, my first thought is I'm going to be even better. Exactly. <laughs> right? No. Exactly. But, it's, but the natural history
0: of it is not that, right? So, yeah. so one of the insights that I've had is that while aging is an exponential problem, many of the responses that we take are linear responses, not exponential responses. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we get to a point where we don't look like we want to, can't do what we want to, don't feel like we want to. And so our approach is to get healthy. And we're going to eat better, get a Fitbit, get a Whoop, get a Aura ring, whatever we're going to do. We're going to get a trainer, blah 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 blah. And it's a get healthy strategy, and in fact, it works, right? But it doesn't work forever; it runs out because the drivers of aging are not being addressed, and they sweep you up, and you end up going over the falls. So to have an exponential response to an exponential problem, to answer your question now, what am I all about? It's about cracking the code on aging to fabric or put together fabricate an exponential response to an exponential problem. And we're decoding that on multiple, multiple levels. It's really, really fascinating. And I will just tell you this, that youth ends at age 26. When you look at the proteomics of aging, which are the proteins that are released in the blood related to aging, youth ends at age 26. There's a wave of aging that comes in at age 34. There's aging going on the whole time, but another wave comes in at age 60 and between 863 and 878 those 15 years right it's a massive wave of aging so it is anything but linear it is a massive wave and if you don't have an exponential response to deal with this you know you're just going to be swept over the falls you're going to do you know you're going to do better than your neighbor but you're not really going to crack the code you're not going to be playing tennis at the level you want to play at 85 mm-hmm. right right and so what we're about is staying young for a long time Mm -hmm. because longevity is an abstract term you know everybody talks I want to be 156 Dan I want to be 180 you know Mm -hmm. Dave Asprey I want to be 300 Peter Diamandis you know I mean Mm -hmm. what does that even mean I mean Mm -hmm. how do you relate to that right Mm -hmm. every picture I see of a hundred year old or 120 year old is like man I don't think that's what I'm going for
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but we all know how to relate to being young and that's what I want so Hundred is the new thirty is the book that I have coming out mm-hmm. um, this spring. And um, in that, we're breaking down basically an exponential response to the aging process as to how to stay young. And if mm-hmm. I die tomorrow, that's fine, but I want to be young for as long as possible. And that's what I'm passionate about. And that's what we built in this in this new company, Glad Longevity.
1: Great, amazing. And I love that. And I just want you to clarify a little bit because I think that. Sometimes there's a bit of a stigma around this idea of like staying young or not aging gracefully, or right, like, you know, embrace your age. You're not as uh, young as you used to be. I mean, you hear all these sayings, but, you know, it's not really about that. It's about, and I'll let you describe it, It, it's really about how you feel and, Mm -hmm. and the experience that you get to have in being in life um, that has a energy to it, right? It's really more energetic than it is about a number. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah.
0: And energy is a factor here. So, you know, there's several things about what you just said that are really insightful. The first is that we've actually normalized aging as a society and it's normalized in our medical system and it's normalized Mm -hmm. in our friend groups and our businesses. Right. And so it's expected that when you're 65 years old, well, maybe you should stop snowboarding. Maybe you shouldn't be playing tennis if you're 70. Maybe that's a little too old, you know, or whatever it is. And so we get all these social cues. Well, you should retire. You should do all these things, right? You're right. at that age. Right. And I think the thing, this is a courageous response, but the, the courageous response is to say, no, no, we live, we are the first generation to live in an age where there's enough science that that doesn't have to be the case.
1: Mm-hmm. and
0: Literally, it doesn't. And so... You know, it's like saying, no, I want to stay young because, and I'll tell you why, mm-hmm. when that exponential curve of decline is coming down, right? You, so you start here, let's say at age 25, and then it, it it comes down exponentially over time to say age 80. Our impact on the world, the impact that we make is also going up exponentially. So every decade, we have more impact on the world than we did the decade before until those lines cross. Mm. Once they cross, once that exponential decline hits that exponential impact, you may have impact for a a few more years, five years, seven years, whatever it is. But then ultimately it starts to crater Mm. because your health can no longer support me, you making that level of impact. Mm. And the thing that we all dread the most is actually becoming irrelevant to where we're in a nursing home. Somebody comes to visit us out of compassion. We're grateful for that. We still have an impact on people's lives because we're still relating to them. But it's it's not the impact that we want to be making. Mm-hmm. Contrast that to, what if you stay young? What if you stay 30 through 100 years, right? And your impact continues to rise exponentially each decade, right? The relationships, the resources, the wisdom. The wisdom. wisdom, yeah. the wisdom right. Right? And you're now impacting the world in such a positive way. And so really the client and your return on investment, right? To work with us is not the cheapest thing to do. But the return on investment is 100x, yeah. Because, right? Because you, you basically, yeah. yeah, because you get to have impact
1: for more and more years. Yeah,
0: and That's not only a joy, it becomes kind of your purpose in
1: life. So yeah. it's, it's really fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, it is fantastic. And you know as we start to wind down and, and run out of time here, I, I do want to just take some time to connect back to that three-year-old self. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you're talking about wisdom and the return on investment. And, you know, you're right. It's it's in fact, there's um, I forget which Brooks it is, but there's a, a great book about and it's, it's the name is the titles escaping me right now. But it's about the second half of life, really. And in the, in the whole just to your point about how we don't see ourselves and we never think it's going to be us. You know, they say the same thing that you're, mm. you're prime productive years from like a work output standpoint, the research shows, and society has sort of embraced this, that's capped off at a certain level. But what his research shows is that your wisdom really that's ends right. up becoming your superpower that's and right. that you can stay productive. Right. Totally. But but that's not true if you don't feel that way. Um,
0: you don't have your health, you can't do that.
1: Right. And so talk a little bit about kind of your spiritual growth mm. and how you continue to use your wisdom. And you're this example in in my life of somebody who is uh, doing exactly what your book's going to be about, what the thesis is, what your practice is about. You're actually living that That's and right. you're, you're using all of it. To inform your work and to continue to evolve—not just yourself, but your work and your and your clients. So, that's just right. explain to me a little, or explain to the listeners, both of us, you know, where you're at with that kind of spiritual piece today. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question, and
0: let me just frame it up for people so they have a sense of context. Uh, The way we think about life, really, and this whole concept of staying young for a long time is that there are four circles that need to be addressed. One is called life energy. Then, of course, there's the longevity, which are the drivers of aging. There's health, and then there's performance. And what we're talking about here is on the life energy circle. And the life energy circle is the ring that binds them all. Because you can throw all the biochemistry in the world and procedures at somebody, but if their life energy circle is not dialed in, it's all for naught. People have self-sabotaging behaviors, addiction, self-doubt, lack of courage. They can't do things. They don't feel loved. They don't feel safe. They don't have good relationships. And so by focusing on the elements of, of that create great life energy, and one of those is spiritual alignment, right? Being really spiritually connected and having a sense of purpose. And so in my life, What's actually happened is when I went through the divorce, uh, the first divorce, actually, when my son was born and I was so depressed, I threw God and everything related to God out out the window because it's like, here I was trying to lead a good life and it didn't work. And so I'm just heaving it all to the side. And then I kind of found my way back by doing the psychological work to solve the questions as to why was I choosing to marry the people I was marrying? And it turned out I was living in reaction to my mom. So because she was trying to smother me, um, you know, and control me, I was choosing people that wouldn't do that, but then they didn't have the capacity for emotional intimacy, which I have a great capacity for. And so we live our lives. This is another lesson for the audience. We live our lives in reaction to the gauntlet that we've all run. Everybody's run a gauntlet coming out of their childhood and everything else. And we live in reaction to that. So our decisions are skewed by those reactions. And I think it's our... Our purpose in life to reclaim our birthright, to live life as our unencumbered selves, where we solve those riddles of what we're living in reaction to. So, for example, in my case, when I felt that unconditional love for for my son, I subsequently, years later, took my mother out of her psychic place in my my mind and psyche and removed her. Now she's over here. And I put that unconditional love in there for my little three-year-old self. And then I did the same thing with my father, who was always distracted, busy, etc. I put that unconditional love for little three-year-old Jeff in there. So now I have parental love. I now have me loving me. And it's like, oh, this is good. I feel love. Mm. And then um, safety, because of that call I had from my dad, I realized that I was living my adult life with a need to make a living. It's like, you got to make a living. Even Mm -hmm. though I'm taking these, what might seem like risky things to leave the known behind and step in to what I believe to be the courageous future, I still have this living in reaction to needing to make a living. And recently, through meditation and over the last several years, really meditation and getting a sense of alignment with a greater sense of purpose, the fact that this is really a virtual reality world. We wake up in a VR world every day and we can choose to keep the VR glasses on or we can take them off and actually align with something much bigger than us. Universal energy, the universe, source energy, God, whatever you'd like to call it. But connecting to that and feeling that energetic flow through you and alignment with that, all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, this is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be safe. And realizing that there's nothing external to us that can ever make us feel safe. No amount of money, no no family, no position, none of that will ever make you feel safe. It's an inside job, just like you have to love yourself with unconditional love. Yeah. You have to make yourself feel safe. So when you get those things dialed in and then you start to put together these spiritual pieces, the next thing you know, you know, you're you're really starting to expand to really I'm a visitor on this planet. I'm here for a purpose and I'm here to live out, you know, and create what I'm here to create, which I love. But I'm really connected to source energy every day. Yeah. That's that becomes my my joy and my peace.
1: Well, so. and and we've talked a little bit about this. I remember a conversation we had at Coach about safety. And and there's there's no greater safety than the safety of being held in that yeah. universal, godly, you know, energy, that source energy. Yeah. If you can find that and remember that you're held by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't really need much more in terms of safety and, yep. um, you know, yep. I really, I commend you cause you know, we're going to run out of time. There's probably a whole conversation around, um, what you just shared. This inside job was your language. Um, I'm launching a, a, a new community. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in fact, you know, just thinking about this, I, I need to really connect with you on it. Um, we'll do that, you know, yep. here off air, but, um, it's called inner space. And, and, and the name really came out of, uh, me going to a 360 and watching, you know, all these guys talking about going to Mars and going to outer Mm -hmm. space. And then my own kind of interpersonal work, realizing there's a whole galaxy Mm -hmm. universe right inside. If we just go there, right. We don't need to leave this planet um it, you know there's 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 plenty to do right there inside and and really, if we do that work, um everything else really falls in line, including you know your physical health um so uh you know that's what i beautiful, what... that's a beautiful comment that you just made. I just wanna
0: say that because I love this idea of of inner space, and you know when you start to think about the multiverse. There's a whole multiverse inside of us, right? That we can connect to without having to travel. So it's it's even bigger than outer space, quite honestly. Yeah. And if you're looking for adventure and for places to go and really explore and find things, there's no bigger platform to do that on than this whole idea of inner space. So that's yeah, a beautiful okay.
1: thing. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Well, uh, yeah, you know, it's great to have this conversation. And I just want to uh, commend you for your journey and your path and how you've continued to courageously leap into um what feels very much like it's always been connected to that source mm-hmm. and uh consequently you know you're making a difference in my life and many others and um i believe this is really important you know that we have to really change the narrative around sick care we have to really change uh, the stigmas around aging, around longevity, around health, around mental health, around you know yeah. really why we're here and what um, you know we're we're capable of, you know what we we can optimize too. And it's not just about you know this this like biohacking, you know this is no, not just a- about like throwing a ball harder, faster, or it, you That's know right. it, it's so much more than that it, it's really right. about um an energy that which which permeates everything and and including you know generationally That's you know right. if you're healthy if you feel good if you're in that source energy it's going to impact your kids it's going to impact your friends right. it's going <clears> to <throat> impact your relationships yep. and um yeah, I just, I just, you know, see so much courage in that. Even as you describe the marriages, you know, um, mm-hmm. to to really see, to you know, that you you actually did the work to see what was happening, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. and and realize your role in it. You know, it's it's just great stuff. So thank you, yeah. I appreciate it. And yeah, yeah no, I'll I... turn it over to you. You know, just kind of final thoughts as we wrap up. Yeah, I, I would just for the audience, I would just say that
0: it is a, it is a. um, a courageous act to live well, and that when you feel like you're in your darkest place, um, it's actually a, there's always a doorway into another universe. And to look at everything as an opportunity, I see everything as an opportunity now. Um, and I would just encourage you to to also do the work for yourself to get to that place where you love yourself and where you do feel safe and you do feel connected because it enables you to stop living in reaction to things. And so you don't go into situations on tilt. You go in as your unencumbered self where you can bring your gifts forward and you can bring your passion, your compassion forward. And people will receive you so much better and the impact you'll be able to have will be so much greater. And you'll have so much joy in your life out of that, which to your point, you said earlier, actually has a profound impact on your health, right? Because if you're living in the stress of being on tilt all the time, it's it's massively destructive to your health. So um, it all ties together. And what I love is how this really has become very much of a spiritual quest. When you talk about longevity and health, it's not just about biochemistry or biohacking, and you know, we're going to take two supplements because our mitochondria are going to get better.
1: Yes, that's important. But that's not what we're talking about here. That doesn't get it done. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Gladden, thank you for taking the time. I know our audience will love it. We'll make sure everybody knows where to find you. And uh can't yeah, wait for that we book to a, come out. Have, and we have a podcast, too, if they're interested, the Gladden Longevity podcast,
0: uh, which yeah. we're talking about age hacking there, age hackers. Uh, but if they just go to the Gladden Longevity podcast, they can... See, we've record, recorded over 175 episodes now. It used to be Living Beyond 120. Mm-hmm. And Glad Longevity is the, is the website if you want to check out some things there too. So. Yep.
1: We'll, uh, we'll link that in the show notes. But uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Love the uh, conversation. and Really yeah. love it. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Great. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.